The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. It is officially baseball season. Pitchers and catchers are reporting spring trainings on the horizon. White Sox baseball's on its way and we have Jim Margulis joining us of Sox Machine. James Fox also alongside us. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. The Super Bowl is over. What a game. What a result. The team won. Awesome. Jim, welcome back. Thanks so much for taking the time to discuss what you've been working on. I want to ask you this as we get this podcast underway. How excited are you about this season? Is the butterflies returning a little bit? How is it for you, what are you feeling about White Sox baseball at this point in February? I guess you could call them butterflies, but it's more like there are so many ways this spring training can go. And it really sounds like an expert opinion when you say anything could happen. But there's a lot going on between second base and right field being very open competitions at this point. Uh, all the injury concerns from last year, new manager uh, and a new coaching staff and a probably a drastically new approach in some regards. Mike Clevenger. Uh, just so many things uh, going on, so many dynamics that uh, we're not used to. There's there's so many between the newness and also the potential charges or like the investigation that could lead to the suspension. Like we're not used to these things typically hanging over like the White Sox environment is usually very familiar for better or for worse, usually for worse, especially like, you know, last year under Tony La Russa. But this year a lot can, uh, you know, it's worth having an open mind just to allow the new administration do its work without trying to saddle it with too many of the grudges that we held against Tony La Russa and, and that whole situation. So we wanted to talk to you today, Jim, because, well, one, you're working on prospect profiles, releasing updated prospect rankings for our site at SoxMachine and FutureSox.com. We have our top 30 that will be releasing right near the end of February, early March. And there's just so much content that we're about to put out regarding the farm system. And when you talk about the big league club, a lot of the knock 
towards the big league club has a lot to do with their depth that the the next 26 men on the roster outside of the 40 man and even included in the 40 man there are some questions but beyond the White Sox active roster we're looking at not a lot of immediate relief and as we discussed the farm systems ranking across Major League Baseball several publications have them in the bottom five and, you know, we know the context, although the White Sox are sort of resetting after a lot of the top prospects graduated following 2019. But after three years and four years now of Mike Shirley ahead of the draft and you have Chris Getz as the assistant general manager now, what is your take on the current state of the farm system, the organization and all that's come about over the last several years as you know, you've experienced change? Well, it's funny, you know, watching the back channel talks about your top 30 list and like, I didn't even like ranking past nine. So I really admire, uh, you know, uh, your efforts to try to to rank 30 in a convincing order. Um, like I stop at 10 because I kind of lose the thread in terms of like, is 17 better than 15? Is better than 19? Like that's that's when it gets really tough. And it's more about just trying to uh, you know, write good blurbs about the player that give a very uh, a good sense of where that player is, even if you know a player might actually end up being the 13th best instead of the 22nd best. Uh, that's kind of the the challenge that lies ahead of you. But it's you know there are a lot of prospects on this list that I feel like are making good progress or making like detectable progress. They still have work to go, but without like. A, a true surplus of heroes at the top are really compelling prospects outside of like the top three uh, guys who look like they're on track to be major league starters in, in one regard or another. They feel like good bets to, to be those guys. Like it, it starts to be like, oh, Lenin Sosa is a role player. Jose Rodriguez is a role player. Luis Mieses might be a role player. Like, you, you know, you, you kind of uh, have to separate the player himself from the shape of the organization. Like you can get down on Lenin Sosa, like take somebody like him because, you know, he might not look like a starting shortstop right now, but it's like last year he made great progress. So you don't want to saddle him with like the, Oh, the organization's not churning enough starters. Uh, and therefore Lenin Sosa isn't a guy or Jose Rodriguez might not be a guy. Like there, there are enough stories here, I think, outside the top three that are worth following and like have been good news, borderline great news uh, and really exciting to follow. But it just, you know, like you said, it's not quite manifesting itself in projectable surplus talent yet for a major league team that's trying to contend this like this would feel like a good farm system to have um, like when it comes to like the 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 beyond the 26 man roster. For a team, like a White Sox team, I'm thinking like 2018, 2019, when you do have the room to audition some guys in low leverage situations. But like I'm thinking another, another guy like Carlos Perez, who's like, he should be, he's at the point of his career where he should get 50 games, like 50 solid games to see what he is, how uh, big his flaws are, and, and, and whether like he'd be a liability behind the plate. But you don't want those 50 games coming with this White Sox team. So that's, I think, where it gets tricky to evaluate some of these players in a, in a context that's so uh, tenuous right now with White Sox trying to contend with a roster that doesn't seem all the way complete. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, prospect lists are out everywhere. Keith Law, Eric Loggenhagen, Kylie McDaniel. You know, it's kind of funny. Like We, we see the bottom five ranking, and I don't think any of us are, are going to dispute that. I mean, it's kind of whatever, 25, 28, 29, like – who really cares? But I do think w- once you start digging in, there were some positive write-ups by all of these guys, by Keith Law, by 
you know, by Eric and Kylie, how much are you able to just kind of, and you alluded to it, focus on basically what's in the individual reports instead of just, oh my God, they're the 28th ranked farm system. Well, I think, you know, it's not really a surprise because they were 30th last year and a pretty convincing 30th. And I remember talking with Keith Law about that, and we've seen the White Sox be ranked 30th before when like Addison Reed was the top prospect and Nestor Molino was number two, and realized like, yeah, this is a pretty boring system right now. Like it's all like you know, guys in their mid-20s who are trying to uh, shore up plate discipline, which is never a great thing, and uh, the, the chances of a breakout really seem slim. Last year with the White Sox having the 30th ranked team, it was – an interesting 30th. Like there were a lot of guys who they were partially ranked 30th because of the losing the pandemic year uh, cost uh, a number of uh, players a chance to really start developing their talent. Like the whole, um, you know, Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist type thing uh, to where like, you know, when they drafted those players in 2019, they'd figure, Oh, just uh, they're going to get their first full year in 2020. And that didn't happen. So uh when they shifted their strategy towards younger players, they didn't have enough runway to really prove themselves to get out of a 30th ranking. But when you looked at the, the the kind of talent on the top 30 list, you could say like, oh, there's just not enough games here to know one way or another whether these guys are any good. And so now that they're 25th, some guys have been able to prove themselves more like Jose Rodriguez, who's been young for the level and and and, and killing it you know, for his, uh, you know, where he came from as a uh you know, low level signing. Uh, but then you have like the other guys like Thompson and, and Dahlquist and Kelly, who just really haven't been able to, to put it together in convincing fashion yet. But, you know, we're seeing a little bit more games from these guys now to understand like, yeah, there's some significant weaknesses here. So it, it does feel like an earned 25th, but I think when you look at the, um, you know, international signings, like a guy like Eric Hernandez, who's played in the DSL last year and was banged up, like, Sure, looking forward to seeing what he does in the ACL. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of guys, Ryan Burroughs, uh, Lloyd Chappelle, another one where, uh, you know, the, the track record is very short, but they've played well enough relative to what expectations were to where, like, when they arrive in the midsummer stateside and start playing, like, an affiliated ball one way or another, like, it should be fun watching them. It should be fun following the box scores, uh, whatever video you can get from the ACL, like, Fun seeing that the firsthand reports and and yeah that's I think where it becomes more of an individual pursuit than just like dwelling on the twenty fifth overall because like you know as people follow the White Sox roster like you can feel the twenty fifthness of the farm system and just how we dread the right field second base talks the starting depth behind Davis Martin like it's really dicey so we're aware, you know, there, there's no lying to yourself about it, but, uh, it, you know, you're not lying to yourself if you really want to see what Jose Rodriguez does next or what Christian Mena does next. You have the wrangling prospect series. You kind of do this every year up on the website. It's there now, you know, why did you split the articles the way that you did? And did you learn, I guess, anything this time doing it the way that you chose to? It's a way for me, like I talked with you, know, with, with you doing the top 30. It's like, I don't really want to rank 30 prospects, especially in a year like this. Um, but it allows me to fire thoughts out about prospects, um, you know, scores of prospects uh, without having the pressure of putting a number on them that, and, and a number that could look foolish if just everything goes belly up or some guys surge in a way I was undercounting them before. So that's kind of the way I do it. And then it's just more of a matter of trying to figure out like, you know, a way to do it that 
puts enough words in an article to have like a legitimate post and not having like a 600 word post and then like a 3,500 word post because I'm covering different, yeah, the farm system at different uh, just stages of where they are age wise and where they are in, in terms of just uh, the, the draft strategy and the signing strategies and so forth. So that's kind of why I, I do it that way. And it's also like, you know, I, I group the injured guys versus the recently drafted guys versus the guys who are just young for the level and haven't quite found their footing yet, just to get an idea of like how much of the farm system was affected by health issues. And this year it was pretty minimal. Like half of the health issues talked about were guys who had Tommy John surgery last year. Uh, So like, you know, just lingering from one year to another as predicted. I think Jonathan Stever with his lat injury was the only guy who had surgery last year that was not expected to be significantly affected uh, in 2022. And just that happened to linger all season, but otherwise like they had a pretty decent year in terms of health. So that was fine. But then you, you look at the, the rest of the list. Like, yeah, I, I have one list of just prospects who are running into one issue that's keeping them from hitting the next level. And that was like the longer list this year because uh, you know, the, the prep players have moved on to be defined enough by what they can or can't do. So when you're talking about the high school pitchers we talked about, Thompson, uh, Dahlquist, and Kelly, like we have an idea of their shortcomings to know like, okay, Thompson's able to accrue innings, but doesn't really have that um, you know, really good one-two punch that he's working with Arsenal-wise. Like Dahlquist, his command just hasn't arrived, and Kelly's had a hard time staying on the mound. So you have an idea by now of what – they can and can't do. And it's like the list of, you know, truly young guys, truly precocious talent that you're not quite able to get a beat on one way or another. That's a little bit shorter this time around. I encourage you, the listener, to go to SoxMachine.com and explore what we have to offer on our Patreon. And if you're able, subscribe and become a patron because so much of our content is posted there and you get all the unique insight. Now, you can go to SoxMachine.com and explore what Jim was just describing in his Wrangling Prospects series. However, Jim, you put together a top 10 White Sox prospect list uh, for yourself, and that's a Patreon exclusive and you can also listen to all of our podcasts ad free if you become a patron so definitely encourage you to do so if you're able but jim to that point you know we're we're thinking a lot about colson montgomery of course and the future of the shortstop position on the white Sox, but oscar colas as well there's a lot of stock being put into a, a player who has seen stateside action just for a couple of years and yet there's expectations for him to be a regular now it may not be right away with the white Sox, but James and I discussed this on our last podcast that, you know, around 400 plate appearances, I think is fair. You know, with that being said, your expectations for Oscar Colas, what are they? Should we temper our expectations related to what we can really expect out of this player and how the White Sox, I guess, project to use him this year? I like him as a prospect and and as a prospect who, you know, is pretty close to the majors. I don't necessarily like him as a plan A for right field. Like uh, when it comes to building... Uh, a White Sox roster. I'm of the mind of more bats than spots block guys. Like I wanted Andrew Vaughn thoroughly blocked in 2021, just because I wanted him to, you know, get some time in the high minors and have to like force his way into the uh, 26 man roster ahead of schedule. And then he ended up being the plan A in left field, not even DH or first base, but left field because they just uh, were so thin. Uh, they, they really didn't, uh, you know, Either they failed in their attempt to build depth up top or just didn't really try that hard. And so I'm kind of the same way in right field to where like, I like Colas a lot as a player. Like I think he's a top 100 prospect and I I understand why some guys, you know, especially like the you know, Keith Laws who 
are not a committee-based approach to ranking top 100. They're just one guy's opinion because he does have some knocks against him when it comes to play discipline and, and age. And, and some guys who rank prospects might like a longer runway for a prospect who's 20 versus 24. And so I, I get that completely. But just when it comes to like the shape of his game, I think he's going to be a good one. You know, like I'm not sure if he'll make an all-star game at any point, but like he should be a, an easy starter for a club like in a couple years. I think my fear with Colas is that he's like he reminds me a little bit of Avi Garcia or like Yuan Makata at the stage in his uh AAA uh and, and uh, you know, he did most of his work in AA last year, but in AAA he was fine too, but like to the point where like he's so talented at that level, and he has you know enough professional experience. When you look at his Japan experience, that like he's his flaws aren't going to slow him down at Double A AA or Triple A. And like Avi Garcia, I think hit like three fifty four at Triple A and had like an over four hundred OBP. Uh, you know when it came to playing in Charlotte, like it just did not challenge him at all. And all his like final learning had to be done at the major league level, like knowing what pitches he could damage, what pitches he couldn't like learning to lay off or make better use of the opposite field. So he didn't hit so many ground balls to the right side. And even then, like he's had an up and down career, but I kind of have those same fears for Colas as like an immediate contributor is like his plate discipline. Like he's very aggressive. It's not terrible. His plate discipline. Like he, you know, he's not a, a completely like wild swinger, like Yoel Cespedes. Like he has some idea of what's going on. He just really likes to swing, really likes to, to show off his power. So, you know, that's my concern is that it might take him a little bit of time to temper that. And is that time going to uh, mess up the White Sox attempt to contend in 2023? That's my concern. I think what's most encouraging to me about Coloss is that, you know, for a left-handed bat, he hits left-handed pitching pretty well. Like he does a pretty good job of, you know, for all his, uh, all the temptation it deals with for letting it fly and, and getting open and really trying to, uh, you know, pull the ball in the air, uh, 450 plus feet. Cause he has that kind of talent. Like he does keep it closed and, and locked down against lefties to where like, he doesn't seem to want to, or he knows his limitations for like, the kind of pitches he can pull and he's more content to keep that shoulder closed and go the opposite way and settle for singles to have competitive at bats against lefties in a way like Luis Mieses, for example, has more of that classic platoon and profile to where like, he's just not really competitive on pitches low and away. Like Colas does a better job of staying on that to the opposite field. Um, at least in the minors, we'll see if, you know, if major league lefties have a different thing to tell them, but there are reasons for optimism, but I have those Avi Garcia feelings in terms of just somebody's going to have to learn like the last mile of his development is going to be a little bit tough, a little bit uneven just because, uh, aggression against, you know, the, the best pitchers in the world who are great at getting guys to go outside of the zone that can be pretty tricky and can sometimes be a years long project to, to finally get on top of. Yeah. So like, I agree with you on that. Like I, I feel like the struggles are inevitably coming regardless. So like, should that lead you to just deciding to start him in right field when your other options are Gavin Sheets and Jake Marisnik and some of these guys, like we've debated this on the pod. Like what do you need to see from Oscar Colas in spring training? If you're the white Sox to just, make that decision because I'm always leery of the like winning a job in spring training thing, you know, where you, you see a guy go nuts in spring training and then they're terrible in April. Like, I don't think it can just be, Oh, his stats were great in Arizona. So like we're bringing him, you know, to Chicago, there's other stuff with him too, as far as like following game plans and things along those lines. But I guess like if you're them, do you have to just kind of commit to him probably being the right fielder or is there like some sort of competition for him to make the club somehow? 
I think you have to go in with that as plan A, unless the White Sox have like a different plan A in mind with some kind of late uh, winter, early spring acquisition that we don't know about yet. But I think with Colossus, assuming like he doesn't look completely overwhelmed and like strike out 48% of the time in spring training, we're like, okay, now here's more pressure. Good luck. You know, that, that seems like it might be unfair and, and, and very, uh, yeah, just like setting himself up to fail versus riding with something that looks like it could be usable. Assuming like no worst case scenario and that his bats are fairly competitive in spring training and, and nobody's really there, no better option has presented itself. I think the way the White Sox hand, handled Andrew Vaughn uh, in 2021 uh, is a pretty good roadmap for how to handle Colas. Like they, you know, I, I think you were among the ones frustrated that Vaughn should have been playing more and playing regularly. And why was he sitting after like a three hit game? But I thought in terms of just like making sure he looked good and making sure you wanted to see more of him, I thought that was a smart, smart call. Like that felt to me like if you're frustrated that he's not playing enough, then that's probably good versus the the other case where like, man, he just, you know, he's just flailing up there. He really could use a break. You know, I'd rather see the case where like leave him wanting more. So yeah, if he sits against some lefties and whether it's Mariznick or even like Larry Garcia, if he looks completely past all his health issues last year, like just to give him a break and not, you know, feel like he's, you're, you're running him to like an over four, three strikeout wood chipper. Like, I think that's a good plan for the first month and then just add more to his plate as time goes on. I have like a a little bit of hope, like a sliver of hope that having ascended the Japanese ranks before and then doing the professional ranks again stateside, you know, I'm hoping that the adjustment period for him will be a little bit shorter just because he's been unfamiliar before a couple times over now to where like he might understand some patterns that he, yeah, a, a brand new prospect or somebody with only one league worth of experience might not have seen before. So that's not really a strategy. I wouldn't want to ho- plan around that and, and project on that, but I have a small sliver hope that like, you know, my, my, my fear is that it's going to take uh, two years for him to, you know, have an OBP above like 300. That's the reason why I think I might be more optimistic here. So one reason why I wanted to have you specifically is just like, I wanted to talk to you about Lennon Sosa just because mm-hmm. like some of the discourse and look, I, I'm not going to, I don't like questioning people that do this professionally. Right. But I just kind of feel like after last season, I think he made a significant swing change that like put him on this prospect map and look, whether he's like ultimately like just like a utility guy or whatever, that's fine. Like you, you went and saw him in person. You know, I know that you kind of, like him a little bit better than some of the other guys in the system. But then I just kind of see him, you know, ranked 10th or ranked 11th. And like, it can't just be what happened to him in the tiny big league sample. Can it? Because he, you know, he went down to Charlotte, he struggled like he always did. And then he kind of did exactly what he did at Birmingham to close the year. So like, what do you think is happening just with the way that winning Sosa is being discussed? It does seem like the major league sample is coloring a little bit because it would, you you have like a little bit of a sneak preview into why it might not work. Like, and I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, a pretty dire forecast and uh, kind of unfair to try to color a guy uh, with that kind of forecast, considering he made the jump from double A to the majors, then came back and a really ambitious attempt the first time around. And then like a more standard cup of coffee the second time. But like, it's a case where like you, you do get a little bit of a vision 
in terms of if your fear is like that he's just too aggressive and he's not going to be able to survive against good right-hand pitching, that's what it would look like. So I understand that impulse. I'm still inclined to say, you know, my feeling of Sosa and yeah, I'll admit that like part of it is like I'm drawn to Sosa because I could see his swing change. Like I'm not a scout and, and I don't pretend to be. Uh, I've watched a lot of baseball and I've, I've learned a little bit more about how to watch things like this, but it was pretty apparent, like watching his side angle swings from uh, 2021 to 2022, like, oh, oh, okay. Like, you know, like just looking at a few replays, like, oh, his, his swing before was just like all hands. And now you can really see that lower half engaging and you can see like the swing strength. And like, you can understand why balls were carrying further. Like it was pretty apparent how it came to be. So part of me like that, like I was very satisfied and being able to identify it myself and maybe identify it before like outlets like baseball America got around to him. Cause I live like three hours North of Birmingham. So it was an easy drive for me when he started looking good. I was planning on going to Birmingham anyway to uh, ask about Davis Martin because he was having the same kind of year before he got promoted. I missed him, but so, so was still there. And so I got to ask about him and make him my story, but yeah, I'm partial to him just because of that, the fun of the discovery of like, oh, he's doing something different and I can see it. Uh, and so like, I will admit being a little bit of a homer in that case, like I root for my story. <laughs> That's kind of fun. But um, also like, you know, when it comes to prospects and somebody making that significant of a jump, like I want to, you know, to me, it makes some sense if somebody showed the ability to make adjustments and put them into action to spectacular results that he can do it again. Maybe not at that scale. Maybe he won't jump like three steps the way that Sosa did last year. But like, if you have the ability to improve, wouldn't you have the ability to make smaller tweaks? Like, or, or shouldn't you earn a little bit of uh, faith that like, okay, I tackled this. Now I can put my mind to this. Maybe something will click on this front. Or, or maybe now that I I'm more comfortable with my swing, I've lived with this for a year. Maybe I have a better idea of what I can touch and what I can't. And the walk rate's going to go up a little bit. And the strikeout rate's going to go down. Like, I want to give a guy like Sosa some credit for like having done the work and having shown the results from a pretty significant, you know, swing change that worked and, and a little bit more patience. And like, it would seem a little bit unfair to say like, well, he did his one thing and this is all it's going to do for him. So, you know, I, I look at it a little bit more like, um, yeah, I guess maybe not in terms of scouting grades or like, you know, what he can and can't do the present day, but just like, Hey, you learned something and you did it. Like, why wouldn't you have the acumen to do it again? Uh, just to, 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 uh, tighten up your game a little bit more. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from with my, with my Sosa appraisal. The value of being in person and watching a player, especially considering you, you have an idea, you have a bit of a foundation of what you can expect out of a player. And then when you see something different, hey, it's noticeable because, you know, you're watching at such a consistent rate. You notice those things. And, you know, it's similar to me when I'm watching Lucas Giolito and Dylan Cease making adjustments in their mechanics. You notice those things. So I, I like that approach because, you know, more Sox fans, I think, should understand that as you know, you, you make adjustments at the higher levels. This is how you become a better player. And you mentioned Birmingham, a player that participated in Project Birmingham was Christian Mena, and that was during his age 19 season. He's going to be 20 years old, pitching what we presume to be in Birmingham this year in 2023. So I'm excited about Christian Mena. Can you give us a scouting report on him and why you like him so much? Yeah, I had him as my you know, number six prospect and top pitching prospect overall. And part of that's because like, I understand like why somebody might rank Noah Schultz 
the top pitching prospect because he, you know, certainly has the the tools and the draft pedigree to do so. But like when it comes to somebody who really didn't pitch in front of people uh, last year in a meaningful setting, like I just want to see something before like I put a put a number above like somebody like Mana who did some really good work in in a ball for a teenager, uh, and you know showed some you know talking about progress. Like he's somebody who showed you know, velocity increases and uh, a really good curveball and the ability to kind of throw a curveball whenever he wanted to. And so like, you know, to me, if somebody like throws a hundred innings and makes those kind of strides when you weren't seeing him coming uh, and, and he has plenty of age to get better, plenty of age to, you know, add a little bit more to his fastball, uh, maybe, you know, figure out how to spin uh, a little bit different and, and get a slider that can grab strikes or maybe be a swing and miss pitch. Like, you know, there, there's stuff to, you can stake down a position pretty easily with Mena, uh, whereas with like Schultz, like it's just completely theoretical. So like that's why I want to give Mena like a nod, just because he's done the work already, and I've seen it. I feel more confident in that regard. But you know, just when it comes to command and and uh, just the ease of his delivery, like he looks like he knows what he's doing, and he's not. He doesn't look like a project. He looks like he has some work to do in terms of like improving his command and learning like what gets punished at higher levels. And so he, you know, he dominated Kannapolis and then, you know, took some lumps at Winston-Salem, but also bounced back from some lumps at Winston-Salem. Like he, he responded like somebody, I imagine a 19 year old would, you know, with talent and that like, sometimes you, you have to wear it and other times, uh, you know, it all clicks for longer. So I like what I saw and, uh, you know, just, you, you don't have to add too much to him to get to a major league, you know, somebody worthy of a major league audition. Like maybe you're talking like one or two more ticks of velocity or a slider or a changeup, like, or not. And, uh, and, and so I think that's, that's a good, uh, starting, uh, I guess, skill set to work with. And, you know, should he encounter some misfortune, like, you know, a latch strain or something like that, that costs him half a season. Like he's got time. Like he's got, he's got a longer runway that, uh, any kind of short-term obstacle will not throw his career off all that much. So Jim, I want to get your take on this and I want to preface the question a little bit here because what I see the White Sox right now, uh, where I see them is sort of in a transitional period. They're at the tail end of a very competitive window because, you know, obviously the last two years, it's unfortunate the way things went down, but the White Sox committed a lot of money of their, uh, their payroll to specific players. You know, they had the pre-arbitration deals and, they're still managing that payroll while also replenishing a farm system with a strategy in the draft to take younger, you know, high school players. We saw Noah Schultz and Colson Montgomery, for example, in the first round. And this is a new strategy. And there's a young pitchers who are trying to graduate to the next level and guys like Matthew Thompson, Jared Kelly still working on things. So given the status of the entire organization, fans are pretty frustrated with the way that the White Sox approach for agency. But to me, it appears that the White Sox want to commit to their internal depth. They know that a lot of who they project to be their best players in the farm system are about a year, maybe two years away from contributing in a big way while also trying to manage payroll. All that being said, what do you think about that idea? Do you agree that the White Sox are sort of trying to wait and see what they can get out of the current club and how the new infrastructure at the major league level with the coaching staff, what they can bring out of what they have currently? Yeah, I think there are, there are you know kind of like a glass half full and a glass half empty way of looking at it. And I think like that's more of the glass half full kind. 
I think the glass half empty would be that, you know, this could be a team in transition. It's not supposed to be a team in transition. This was supposed to be, you know, the peak of their contention window. And, and you know, you'd be hopefully getting, you know, years of postseason revenue and, uh, you know, the climbing attendance and climbing, climbing TV ratings. And then you could wait for that farm system to replenish and eventually uh, restock the 26-man roster. And we're seeing the... Uh, yeah, the, the plan starting to fray up top and the farm system isn't quite ready yet. So to me, it strikes me as a case of, you know, should it be another really rough go in 2023 with the problems we've seen before? Like, you know, you know Yasmani Grandal just being pretty much done uh, with Jimenez and Robert and Anderson and Makata not being able to play together uh, with the pitching depth being, um, you know, Tested and, and and failing because like Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito get hurt or something like that. You can see a case where like, yeah, just they're going to have to let payroll melt off the books. And there's no point in trading like a Brian Ramos for other, yeah, for, for more, more proven players. Because like if they want to shift gears or if they want to try to reallocate some funds to where like we're going to focus more on what the, the Colson Montgomery White Sox can do. Like, well, it doesn't do much good if you've traded like Colson Montgomery's running buddies. Like if it's just him and nobody else, uh, you don't want to have that be the case. So I think right now it's more a matter of like, well, if this this plan didn't work, where it's like the the veterans like Lynn and Grandal, you already saw Keuchel uh, be knocked off the roster. Like, yeah, if we're seeing this, the idea of that White Sox team fall by the boards, like Giolito would be another one, you know, entering free agency and the White Sox being comfortable and letting him go. Like, they're going to have to replenish and they're going to have to do some from the outside, but it could also, you know, it also stands to benefit the White Sox that they have as many in-house options as possible. So I guess I look at it more of a, a cynical standpoint in that the White Sox maybe don't trust what they have up top and they're looking at strength in numbers to try to solve some positions internally by having the most options available. Like second base would be one where just like, yeah, they're not going to overinvest in second base right now because they have three guys who might be the starting second baseman by the end of 2024. And they'd rather go with that than overinvest in a 2023 season that an average second baseman might not help. Like you can look at it that way too. And either way, it's not exciting, but that way feels a little bit more like um, disaster planning which I think is fine. Like it's good to have a plan in case, you know, everything goes belly up. It's just not great that this is the timing where you thought everything might be going belly up. Like you, you might, we thought we might be having that conversation in 2025, not 2023. So we've talked about how thin the system is. And, you know, you talked about how you only wanted to rank nine players. I, I felt comfortable up until 11 and then, you know, 12 through 30 is, is really hard. And I think that's one of the reasons why this system kind of ranks where it does in publications. It's just because there's absolutely no depth. But what do you take from just the point that, you know, I think while some of these guys might not be impact big leaguers, I, I feel pretty confident that they have like five big league contributors, like, you know, as far as the position players go at the top of this system. And it's just, I guess, not something that I've been accustomed to seeing, you know, outside of when they had Robert and Vaughn and all these guys that they, you know, imported from elsewhere. Do you take anything from the fact that, you know, I think there's like, you know, four, what, four international signings and then Colson Montgomery all kind of look like they might have some sort of big league future within the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. The international aspect I think is really encouraging because, you know, we saw for years, even after, you know, years after Marco Patti took over that the White Sox couldn't uh, get any, first they couldn't get any, 
standard international signing by standard international signing. I mean, like somebody who isn't Luis Robert or Jose Abreu or like a 24 year old Cuban, you know, just more a matter of like a, a, a 17 year old uh, player from the Dominican or Venezuela or, or something like that uh, signing for five, six, you know, low seven figures. Like they didn't get one of those guys to Birmingham. Then Mike Rodolfo got to Birmingham, but then he struggled to get over that hump. And then finally, we're seeing guys start crossing over into Charlotte and, and breaking onto the major league roster. So all that is very good and very encouraging. And the way I looked at it when it came to the farm system is that like looking at all the other lists, everybody agrees in the top three, um, you know, in, in some order or another with Montgomery, Colossus, and Ramos. All those guys look like they could hold starting jobs based on their current tracks and uh, that their flaws aren't that pronounced yet to where like they can they can be projected for starting jobs in the major league, whether it's first division starters or second division starters uh, remains to be seen, but that's, that's something. And then you get to like the uh, four through nine, I would say to where like, you know, setting aside Peyton Paulette and Noah Schultz because they haven't pitched yet. Uh, but you have guys who might be starters or might be bullpen arms, or in the case of Rodriguez and Sosa might be utility guys, or, you know, might be able to hold on a starting job. Like, that's fine. And that's good. Like, you know, it, it's good to have a number of candidates who might be able to start at second base. I think the tricky thing is like when we're talking about, we've spent the winter talking about uh, the White Sox farm system and who they could trade. It's hard to trade guys like Rodriguez and Sosa because while they could help the White Sox, other teams have guys like them in their systems. Like Luis Mieses, like a platoon bat, like uh, he's been, you know, checking things off his to-do list and, and progressing. It's nice to see the player he's become in double A and hopefully he'll keep growing. But like other guys have a Luis Miese or other teams have guys like Luis Mieses in their farm system. So that's, I think the tricky part is like they're valuable to the White Sox, but they're not valuable to other teams. And that's fine. It just might, I guess, color the way you perceive some of these players is not special because like it just, it's hard to shop them around and feel like you're getting decent value or like why even bother making this trade because we may as well stick with the guy we know and hope he can keep improving. So the prospect list, obviously, you know, it's not the most important thing, I guess, but what, what do you think needs to happen? I guess for this to be in the 15 to 25 range somehow, is it as simple as the White Sox being right on Noah Schultz and Peyton Pallett or something along those lines where, you know, we feel as optimistic about some of these pitchers that we've talked about as we do about, you know, a couple of the hitters at the top. Yeah. I think, you know, having those guys hit would be huge just because like when Sean Burke and Sean Burke's been fine, like he's been, you know, I, I think making the strides you want to see from somebody who has drafted his position and had his to-do list, you know, being a, a big guy with control issues in the, in, in college at Maryland, like he's been improving that. So that's fine. Like, you know, Sean Burke's individually is fine. Do you, do you want Sean Burke being like the the closest thing the major league ready in your farm system? Like probably not, but that's the way it is. And same thing like Christian Mena, like if he's the top pitching prospect in your system, like you'd like a guy that's a little bit closer, or maybe has three pitches instead of two. You know, like up there rather than Mena. But like you know, in, individually, uh, you know, he's not responsible for that. So I think like when it comes to you know, adding some bulk to where like, you know, they're not the top two, or if they are the top two with another year development, uh, then like, you know, Plett and Schultz will be the next Mena and Burke to where like you have four of those guys instead of two of those guys. So that'll help because right now it looks pretty thin on the pitching side. And then I think when it comes to the, the farm system on the position player fronts, like 
you know, I think it would help to have like, you know, an Eric Hernandez uh, breakout or like a Ryan Burroughs or like Lloyd Chappelle, like some, you know, some of the DSL guys start showing up and, and, and shoring up the, you know, become, becoming less like theoretical prospects and, and more like, oh, here's some real state side production. Like, okay, they're more tangible to me now. Like having them would show up. Um, but also I think like even at the major league level, like if, like uh, a Sosa or a Rodriguez or even like Colas can maybe like produce the major league level in a meaningful form that might give the White Sox a little bit of a reputational boost that like, you know, some teams that we've seen like the Dodgers and the Rays and the Guardians get in terms of like, oh, we trust this flawed prospect a little bit more because the White Sox have shown the ability to keep developing them. And, and so so I think it's like a, a, a whole village approach to improve, uh, improving the farm system is like, you can improve the prospect stock so much, but like if these guys never quite materialize into real major leaguers, it's going to be hard to give the next, you know, you know should Ramos or Sosa or, or Rodriguez graduate, like the next one of those guys, the benefit of the doubt that they can be more than they're currently showing. I think like that's something the White Sox need is to be a little bit better at allowing these guys to make the jump to where like you believe in their ability to identify talent and, and, and get them over their individual obstacles along the way. Jim, this is a treat. It's always so fun to talk to you. Love listening to your thoughts on the Sox Machine podcast as well with Josh Nelson. And I know you talked about this earlier in the offseason, but I want to get your take now that you're on the Future Sox podcast is given all the changes this offseason, the White Sox and the dugout, they added Chris Johnson as an assistant hitting coach. That tells me they really liked uh, his communication skills at AAA. Justin Jershley got moved up to AAA manager now. And yeah, I, I want to ask you your opinion of the way that the White Sox are operating. Do you get the impression that with Chris Getz and Rick Hahn and all the like in there, Mike Shirley, do you think there's some cohesion now within the front office and the rest of the organization? Do you believe that the infrastructure is valuing communication more so than they have before? Well, I, I think you know, when you have Tony La Russa going and, and Pedro Grafal coming in and Pedro Grafal is not like a Bruce Bochy type to where like he is going to be calling the shots or you're going to have to defer to him when it comes to picking the 26 man roster. It does feel like Grafal will be more willing to, you know, somebody like him with, you know, no major league experience managing, you know, not, you know, major league experience as a player coming into it for the first time. Like he's going to be more open to suggestions from the outside. And that could be very good because like last year, I think we saw for so many reasons, the disconnect between the front office and the management up top affecting like the management of the rest of the roster and guys at AAA and guys at AAA blocking guys at double A. Like I'm thinking like, when it came to like Luis Robert swinging the bat and letting go with the wrong hand uh, because of his wrist, like uh, that was uh, maybe the most symbolic representation of just what that disconnect was doing to the White Sox product. And I'm thinking like when it came to Robert, like, and then Mark Payton came up for like last couple of weeks and Mark Payton was getting much action. And part of me wondered if Payton wasn't playing just because if he had a really good couple weeks at the end of the season after they were out of it, would the front office get knocked or would Tony La Russa get knocked for not playing him earlier when it could have made a difference? Like I didn't mean my brain did go to there just because like it, it was so fundamentally mismanaged that uh, you could see a case where like the White Sox front office or the, you know, the coaching staff up top La Russa staff was, you know, covering its, its butt a little bit, um, you know, just the rampant mismanagement going on. So I think, you know, there is some, there, there will be some benefits of the turnover up top. Like Chris Johnson going from AAA to the major leagues, like 
I like what he says. Like I have nothing against Johnson personally. We just saw Frank Menachino make the the same jump, and uh, you know we saw very quickly diminishing returns with his approach. So I'm not inclined to say like yeah, especially with the way Charlotte plays. Like I, I have limited, I guess, uh, excitement about how good a Charlotte hitting coach looks. Uh, just uh, I think the the environment tends to make them look very good. And then as soon as they come to the majors, like, oh, it's like same as every other hitting coach. It's mostly the product and then a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, how they communicate. But I am looking forward to seeing like, you know, if they do get better at communicating data to hitters about what pitchers are doing, will that affect how they prepare hitters at AAA? Because now all of a sudden, like they're having something that works up top and it's going to be a top-down approach to just how they implement data down the chain. Looking forward to that, like Justin Jershley, like, yeah, you know, I'm, he seems like he's doing a perfectly fine job. Like I think a minor league manager, like he's doing, you know, he understands the task at hand in terms of developing players. So that's fine. Like I don't really have any reason to think like he should be a major league manager or the White Sox manager at some point. Like, but I mean like the fact that he's, he's there is like, if he left or if he stayed, like I wouldn't necessarily care so much. What I'm, what I'm interested in is like, since Jershley is a hangover of some, or like a carryover of some previous administrations, Will he be, you know, amenable to working with a new way of doing things if the White Sox do have this massive uh, transition in terms of like data implementation up top with Griffal and, uh, you know, Jose Castro and and Mike Tozar and such up top? Will that trickle down? Like, I'm, I have no reason to think like Jershley wouldn't, but, you know, given that you're dealing with different eras of the White Sox farm system, I, I hope they have that in place to where like, this is going to be an organizational wide approach to, you know, learning how to dissect data and learning how to implement like international league scouting reports and, and pitch data and video and track man stuff into how you're going to be playing the swing the bat that night. I think that's perfectly said and exactly how I feel. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk to us. It was fun. Oh, my pleasure. That's Jim Margulis. He operates SoxMachine.com. We're partners at SoxMachine.com. Of course, you're listening to the Future Sox podcast, where we release episodes every Tuesday. For Jim Margulis and James Fox, my name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, think about becoming a patron. We have so much content, exclusive content for you, the patron, if you're willing and able. It's Prospect Week coming up next week. Future Sox is releasing our top 30. Can't wait for that. We'll have a mailbag. James is all over that as well. And then Jim has his prospect stuff coming in surrounding weeks as well. So baseball's on its way. We're here for you every day, 365 days a year at SoxMachine.com. Thanks so much again for listening. We'll talk to you all next week.